0: We are in the middle of Advent, and this is the third week of Advent. If you're not familiar with this season, this is a season that historically the church has celebrated the miracle of the incarnation when God became a human being, when he entered into his own creation, and what the church has historically done for the, first, for the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day, the four Sundays before Christmas Day, the church has paused to reflect on Scripture and to wrap our hearts around the miracle of the Incarnation. This morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that, honestly, if we don't dissect it, if we don't park, if we don't stay here long enough, it will read as just a bunch of information. But as we park here today, we open up our hearts and let the Word of God speak. I'm confident that there is a miracle A miraculous word from God for each of us during this Advent season. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. It says this, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Hekaniah and his brothers at the time. Of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Hekaniah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azar. Azar, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, rather, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we come to your word with expectant hearts. We ask that you would speak to us, meet us, cause your word to come alive to us. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Powerfully transform our hearts. And Lord, may we grow in our love and our affection for you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Names are quite powerful. Powerful. You know, the Scripture says that one of the most precious, priceless things that you have, that you possess, it's it's worth more than all the money you have, is your name. Your name carries weight. When people hear your name, it evokes something in them. For some people, when they hear a certain name, think of people in your life, when their name is mentioned, Some people, gladly, when you hear their name, it connotes reliability, faithfulness, trustworthiness, someone who will get things done, someone who will be present. But then there's other names in our lives that when the very mention of the name, your back tenses up, your shoulders get stiff because they connote something negative. They're not reliable. They're hurtful. You don't know where they're coming from. Names are powerful. And they're powerful now, but they were even more so powerful in the time of Jesus because the names of one's genealogy essentially read like your resume. These names, your connection to them was basically how the world understood you, how they placed you, how they related to you. It communicated how much respect you should be given or how much respect should be taken away. These names were not just just casual ancestors, they actually shaped your present reality. If you were connected to the right family, you had a very distinct kind of life. If you were connected to the wrong family, it didn't matter how spectacular you were as an individual, you were locked in. This was like a, a different form of a caste system. You, you were in your lane depending on the names that you were connected with. And before we unpack the names that Jesus was connected with, the very beginning of this genealogy, it addresses Jesus with three distinct titles. And these titles all are heavy names. They communicate something quite powerful. Look at what it says. This is the genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All three of those titles are heavy because they communicate something distinct. When it talks about Jesus as the Messiah, it's ascribing to him the distinct title and status that he is the anointed one. He is the promised savior. He is the one upon whom the spirit of God had come to rest on and that through his life and sacrifice and ministry would bring salvation to the nations. He is the promised Messiah. But if that name wasn't heavy enough, then there is Jesus being called the son of David. That name connotes that he is to be regarded as a king. It's connecting him to one of Israel's most prominent favored kings. A king who was told that from his biological line, another king would rise up, another king would come, and that this king would be the anointed Messiah. But not only so, he's also called a son of Abraham. That, to the hearers of that time, would say that Jesus was to be considered a true and full Israelite. It may be a shocker to you, we're a very diverse congregation, many different ethnicities Jesus was not a Christian. He was Jewish. He was Jewish by birth, Jewish by custom, Jewish by culture. And when you read this genealogy, it is a very Jewish genealogy. The Jews of that day would be hearing this in a very specific way, very different than the way perhaps you and I are hearing it today, and one of the things that would have stood out to them, glaring, it, there would have been like the, the loss of oxygen in the room, people would have gasped, is when they would have heard the people in Jesus' genealogy, because we read through some names that were incredibly scandalous, horrifyingly so, to the people then, probably not so much today. But still, if we pause and reflect, there's some corollaries. There's some ways that we could connect to how scandalous this was. Number one, his genealogy intentionally included women. Before we even get into the specifics of the women that it included, it included women. This is big at that time. When women were not treated with even remotely the amount of respect and dignity that they're given today, and most of us would argue very level-headedly that still women are not given the amount of respect that they deserve today. But talking about back then, this is just astounding that they would even mention women in his genealogy. Most genealogies never mention women, which is quite crazy because what these, these... Descendants came from men. There was no women involved in the process. It was like, let's just ignore the other, you know, the, the other person involved in creating a child. But they mentioned women in the genealogy of Jesus. This is scandalous in and of itself, but specifically the women that they mentioned was really scandalous. Some of them were non-Jewish women. you got to realize, if this is Jesus' resume, if this is what should cue us up, how we should respect him and relate to him, people are hearing that in his genealogy are non-Jewish women. That's scandalous. But then even the Jewish women that they mentioned, they were quite scandalous. And this is being all put out there, not hidden. It's being put out there in public, For people to hear and understand, and God is trying to say something to us in the fact that when his genealogy, his earthly genealogy is traced back, it is riddled with scandalous people. But today we're going to focus on the scandalous women in the genealogy of Jesus. Because all of these women that are mentioned, in particular, they all had some sort of sexual stigma attached to them. And now here's where it's different today versus back then. Today, there isn't, our society has probably shifted somewhat, whereas there isn't the amount of shame or stigma that there used to be attached to sexuality because our society has, has moved to a place where now Most of the boundaries, most of the principles of scripture that at once spoke into sexuality are no longer being allowed to do so. In broader culture, we're different. We're a different people. We are a city within itself, and we live differently. However, in our society as a whole, when it comes to sexual stigma, there isn't that much these days. But back then, this was scandalous. I remember seeing a documentary about modern day Germany and it was an interesting point in the documentary where they said that since World War II, Germany has struggled to create what they would consider to be expressions of beautiful art. Because inwardly, as a nation, they are deeply conflicted and horrified and ashamed of their past. Could you imagine if that past is in your shadow? To try to run from that shadow is a daunting task. And as you would try to express beauty and differentiate yourself from it, that's an incredibly difficult thing to even process. In the genealogy of Jesus, these women, they had a past that was quite traumatic. And let's begin with Tamar. It's in Genesis 38. I encourage you to read the story this coming week. She had a really horrifying experience. Back then, Jewish law prescribed that a male descendant had to be raised up. And if the husband died before a male descendant was born, if he had a surviving brother, that brother had to go and raise up the male heir for on, on behalf of the brother who died. Now, this was very complicated, very crazy custom, because the brother that would be raising up an heir for their deceased brother would, would be losing part of their inheritance in the process. It, it was a whole big thing. Sadly for this woman, it did not work out the way she would have liked, because at the end, her husband dies... Then the next brother who tries to raise up an heir dies as well. And so at this point, the father, Judah, says, I don't want any more of my sons to die in trying to raise up an heir from my previous son. So he promises falsely and says, There's a future son that you'll be able to have. Just wait. He's young. And in the course of time, this woman, Tamar, finds out that her father-in-law lied to her. The younger son goes off and was given over to somebody else. So now she is left just in limbo. For women at that time, marriage really connected them to a sense of stability and protection and covering. And then for this woman, she's carrying on herself the stigma, the reputation of no heir was able to be raised up and brothers have tried and they've passed away and she can't get married in this in-between limbo state. So she has been done, an incredible injury has been done to her, and in the midst of that, the story goes that she dresses up and covers herself and actually puts on the clothing that would be associated with a prostitute. She stays on the side of a road, and the father-in-law, Judah, is traveling this side of the road, and he goes and he sleeps with her, not knowing that it's his daughter-in-law. Some of y'all don't read your Bible enough. You're like, what? What is this? This is a Netflix show? No, this is Genesis 38. Fast forward, it's heard that Tamar is pregnant. And what does Judah do? Oh, she needs to pay. She needs to, let's stone her. Let's bring her in public. Let's shame her. And in the course of that, she reveals that it was him. This woman is in the genealogy of Jesus. It doesn't stop there. Let's go to Rahab. Rahab, Joshua chapter 2. If you read the story, Joshua sends two unnamed spies to do reconnaissance to the land. And Rahab is the only named character in the story. She's a Canaanite prostitute who confesses in verses 9 to 11 of Joshua chapter 2, that the deeds she heard of Israel's God. And in that process, she actually protects and delivers the spies in exchange for the life of her family. And so spies are being sent into Jericho, and these spies, if, they, if they're caught, they're dead. Rahab protects these spies, even though she has no, there's no self-interest to do so. It's in her best interest to report them. But she protects them because she had a fear and reverence for Israel's God, even though she was a Canaanite prostitute. This woman, Rahab, is named in Hebrews chapter 11. She's considered one of the champions of faith because she recognized who God was and confessed her faith with action. This woman is in the genealogy of Jesus, but it doesn't stop there. We go to Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 through 4, it's a short book, but essentially it's a story about a Moabite widow who shows incredible devotion and loyalty to her mother-in-law, who is a Hebrew, and she travels to Bethlehem. And effectively what happens in the story is that Naomi puts out her daughter-in-law, some would argue she almost kind of pimps her out, and then all of a sudden There's a wealthy landowner, and he's a leader in the community, Boaz, who finds her and falls in love with her and decides to redeem her. I I wish I had time to talk about the idea of a kinsman redeemer. It's one of the most beautiful ideas and pictures in Scripture. I encourage you, read through the book of Ruth. But much like Rahab, we see something in Ruth That's quite powerful. This outsider to the people of God is involved in the lineage of Jesus and the story of redemption through her faith, through her devotion to God. And now she's being mentioned as being in the lineage of Jesus. The next person is even just as scandalous. If you read the genealogy, remember it specifically mentions about Solomon that he was connected to Uriah's wife. They could have said her name Bathsheba in the genealogy but specifically they mention her as Uriah's wife because if you don't know the story King David essentially abuses his power gets his guards to bring Uriah's wife to his room she becomes pregnant eventually when he finds this out he then orders a hit on Uriah I'm t- read your bibles it's amazing He literally orders a hit for Uriah to be killed in order to try to conceal what was happening and just kind of just brush it all under the rug. In Jesus' genealogy is a murderous king that committed adultery, abused his power. Many people argue That he more than likely raped her. That this wasn't consensual because of his power. And this is in the genealogy of Jesus. What does this say to people then? Whether they wanted to hear it or not. And what does this say to people now? It says this. God chooses to pursue and to work through the outcast. God chooses to pursue and to work his plans through the outcast. For people that were hearing it at that time, that would have been a message that they probably didn't want to hear because to say you were an outcast in a society that would relate to you or not relate to you based on your lineage would essentially be to say, "I'm going to step out of the boundaries. I'm not. Going to, I'm going to put myself in a category where people won't relate to me, where they'll where they'll put shame toward me, where they'll isolate me socially." But at that time. Jesus' genealogy was screaming out to people that put so much identity in their own genealogy and saying, if you have a broken past, there's redemption for you. There's hope for you. There's a new day for you. There's a God who can work something miraculous even through the brokenness of your past. That if the genealogy of Jesus could be riddled with so much brokenness, This genealogy communicates to us that God's plans will not be hindered, will not be stopped, despite the brokenness of our past. If you were looking for a moment to say amen, you just missed it. Because I can't tell you anything more hopeful than that when we look at the genealogy of Jesus and what it means for us, for us in this room. There's nothing in your past that would exclude you from God's plans being accomplished in and through you if the genealogy of Jesus was not enough to hinder the plan of salvation. Your genealogy, your past, your family of origin is not enough to hinder God's plans from being fulfilled in and through you. The genealogy of Jesus gives hope for us who have broken family lines. Because it didn't just stop up until the point right before Jesus was born, his very birth was filled with scandal. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she was involved in her own sexual scandal because she was viewed before it was known that what was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. She was viewed as potentially uh, unfaithful. And she would have, at the risk of dying, of being put to death in that climate, in that culture... This is how it carried the scandal. And I I realize if if you're connecting the threads, there's so much connective tissue between all these stories, and the connective tissue is around sexual scandal. And I think it's important to park there for a moment and just name what that means is that in that culture, there were few things that would stain someone socially than something that was connected to a sexual practice, a sexual act that was deemed as unworthy. It's not focusing on sex, but it's focusing on the thing, the idea it's connoting is the thing that would bring the maximum amount of shame to someone. That's the thing that even Jesus works through. Could you imagine if you woke up tomorrow morning and found out that you were a descendant of Hitler? That would rattle your bones. Say, so I came from what family? He was what to us? Think of whatever that level of scandal that you would it would be hard for you to forgive yourself or move past or it would rock your world. That's what these stories connote. Jesus is coming from a family line that has incredible baggage, yet none of that baggage was enough to stop. God's plan. God loves the outcast. Every outcast, every time. God loves the outcast, every outcast, every time. The genealogy of Jesus screams this to us that God loves the outcast, every outcast, every time. And that's hopeful for us if you feel like an outcast. If today you feel like you're on the margins, if you feel like you're not good enough, you're not worthy enough, you don't have what it takes, that's hope. That that gives you joyous optimism, the possibility that God could work through you, that you're not outside of the bounds of God's power working through you. That gives us great hope if you're feeling like an outcast, but... If you're not feeling like an outcast today, if today you feel quite secure in your pedigree, whether it's your family of origin, you're connected to a really good family and there's wealth and there's tradition and there's power attached to your name, or maybe it's not your family lineage that you root your identity to. Maybe it's you went to a great school or you have a good career or you live in a nice neighborhood, whatever it is that maybe is making you not feel like an outcast, the fact that God loves the outcast and pursues the outcast comes to us and says, whether you are an outcast or not, there is a humble invitation for us to fall to our knees and say, if you're an outcast, have hope. If you don't feel like an outcast, examine what you root your identity to that gives you the false impression that you're not an outcast. Because here's the reality. Before God, we are all outcast. We are all on the out. We all need to be pursued. We all need to be rescued and redeemed. We're all out of reach. And Jesus has come for all of us. When we look at the Gospels... Jesus was the ultimate outsider. He was crucified. This was a fate that was reserved for the most heinous of heinous. Jesus was crucified like an outsider. You know what one of the greatest accusations against the Christian faith over the last 2,000 years from from its beginning till now is that it was a religion of women and slaves. That was one of the biggest criticisms when the Christian faith first came on the scene. It was a religion of women and slaves. Why did they say that? Because at the very heart of it, it, you see this move of God toward the outcast, the disempowered, the marginalized. And why that's so powerful for us today is because our world never ceases to set up hierarchies and social circles and barriers And yet in this story, we see a God that's rejecting all of that and and busting through all of that and redeeming despite all of those things, that there is no such thing as a sinner that's too deplorable or too far out of reach or too filled with shame that God's hand can't redeem and renew and rescue. The genealogy of Jesus emphasizes this, but it also reorients how we relate to our world. If you and I in this day and age would find ourselves having some type of prejudicial feelings or or judgment toward people that the world would consider outsiders, we should be deeply convicted by that thought or that action because we were redeemed by an outsider. We were saved by someone who was treated as an outsider. And so for us to extend nothing but warmth and reception and love to outsiders is an absolute affront to the very one who saves us. There's no part of our lives that's too far from God to save. Nothing in your life that you would categorize as outside, as too far, nothing is too far for god to save as the worship team comes forward i want to invite us if we could if we could stand and as we stand i want to invite you to raise your heart to god and begin to reflect on your past on your family of origin on your history and bring those things up to God that maybe have felt too heavy the things that perhaps have carried a sense of shame that you haven't really thought and believed that God could move in that area of your life. It's almost as if God is working around it, but he's not working through it. God wants to redeem the broken aspects of your family of origin. He wants to communicate loudly and clearly, there's nothing in your past that's too broken for my power to work through, to bring redemption through. Would you raise those areas of your life that feel so broken that you struggle to believe that God could work through those things? Would you raise them to God right now? Jesus, we bring to you our families. Lord, the families of our, in our past, our present family, And we bring to you all the areas of brokenness that feel so hopeless. Jesus, thank you that you didn't hide the brokenness in your genealogy. And we don't hide ours either right now. Have it, Lord. Take our brokenness. Move through it. Work your plans and your power through it, Jesus. Lord, we come to you and we pray that the reality of you being an outsider, being crucified, may that convict us whenever we treat others like outsiders and judge and isolate others. We were saved by an outsider. May we be humbled, may we be hopeful by your very genealogy. Let's come to God now as we seek him, as we bring those broken places in our life. The prayer team is in the back to my left and your right. At any given moment over these next few moments, you can exit out of your seat and receive prayer for anything you're carrying, anything the message might have evoked, anything, absolutely anything. Let's seek God together, a God who pursues the outcast.